If somebody asked you today what it takes to be saved, would you have an answer that was confident and specific? Think about it. Today's guest, Dr. Michael Barber, is going to help unpack the topic of salvation, what every Catholic should know. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik, and today's topic is salvation, what every Catholic should know, and our guest is Dr. Michael Patrick Barber. Dr. Barber is an associate professor of sacred scripture and theology at the Augustine Institute Graduate School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He has authored scholarly articles and book reviews for academic journals such as Journal of Biblical Literature, Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters, and Religious Studies Review, as well as numerous books. His most recent titles are Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology, co-authored with Brant Petrie and John Kincaid, and that's from Eerdmans Publishing. He also wrote recently, or just recently released, and I'm just enjoying it so much, Salvation, What Every Catholic Should Know, and that's from Augustine Institute Press and Ignatius Press. Dr. Barber lives in Aurora, Colorado with his wife, Kimberly, and their six children, Welcome to the program, Michael. It's so good to have you here. Lisa, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's, it's exciting because I think this topic is so neglected. We, we all think we know the answer to this one. And it not only is it um, a little bit you know, something that we just really need to pick apart and look at it and learn some things about, but it's really important for us to understand and appreciate the, the treasures that we've been given in our Catholic faith. Absolutely. You know, I grew up uh, cradle Catholic. Uh, I was homeschooled uh, as well. And so um, I consider that I had a pretty strong Catholic formation, but I'll never forget being on a family vacation and uh, somebody came up to me at a hotel, was in a, involved in a conversation with some other teenagers uh, about music. And they asked me, Are, have you been saved? Uh -huh. And I remember feeling like I was a deer caught in the headlights. I really didn't understand the question, to be honest with you. Uh, part of me was a little bit put off. I was like, am I saved? Well, you ask me if I'm going to hell? I mean, I'm a good guy. I'm not going to hell. But, <laughs> but it, it also sort of struck me as odd that the question was, you know, have you been saved? And uh, it's like, salvation is supposed to be a future event, right? Uh, that was what was going through my mind anyway. Right. The uh, question is in the past tense. Right. So, <laughs> so have I been saved? Uh, I'm not really sure how I answer that. I remember we were involved in this conversation about music and this, the question got uh, addressed to me. And uh, then somebody else immediately changed the topic and started to talk about a different music group or something. <laughs> and, and I recognized I wasn't going to get out of this. I knew they were going to ask me again. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I remember in that interim, just a, a flood of thoughts going through my mind. And uh, I finally I decided I, I should write the book that I wish I had read before I'd been posed that question. So <laughs> you know, it's really funny, Lisa, right? As Catholics, we go to Mass every Sunday. Uh, and we profess our faith in a version of the ancient Nicene Creed. And in the Creed, we say that the entire reason Jesus came down from heaven, the whole point of Jesus being born at Christmas, right? The reason he died on Good Friday, the reason he rose on Good uh, on, on Easter Sunday is for us men and for our salvation. That's what we say. 
But but what does it mean to be saved? We don't think about it very much. In fact, we don't use the term saved very much. I know uh, that uh, if I were to go to the parish hall after mass, right after I said those words and uh, found somebody in the parish hall talking about how he's been saved and how Jesus is his Lord and Savior, I think a lot of people would wonder at my parish if, if the guy was a Catholic at all. I think a lot of people would suspect he was a non-Catholic just visiting the parish because as Catholics, we don't talk about salvation. In fact, I told a friend of mine who's a Catholic, I was writing this book, Salvation, what every Catholic should know. And he said, well, why don't you just call it how to get to heaven? And I said, that's the problem. That is the problem, right? If you think of salvation just as getting to heaven, you're missing out on a huge part of what the New Testament is trying to teach us. Salvation isn't just a future reality. It affects us in the here and now in profound ways. And if we get these things wrong, right, we're going to set ourselves up for major pitfalls in the spiritual life because theology just isn't academic trivia. You know, it's not like, well, I just have to know these doctrines so I'm not a heretic. I think that's how a lot of people look at theology, but this is totally backwards, right? And we live in a culture today that tells us truth doesn't matter, that the pursuit of truth doesn't matter. People just want to know, well, what's your agenda? Why are you saying that? And, and this has infected, I think, the church, too. There, there are a lot of people who don't want to think about theology. Theology is an obstacle to spirituality. Theology gets in the way of the church's pastoral ministry. You know, I, I used to, a priest used to always talk about how you don't need all that fancy theology. And, you know, <laughs> if you don't know, if you don't know the truth, you can't live it. That's and right. so what I want to show in the book is that the book is, uh, is that salvation, it's not just a doctrine, right? It's not just about a truth, but it's about the reality that we're called into to live as Christians, as believers. And if we get these things wrong, again, we set ourselves up for some major spiritual pitfalls. So that's the whole book, basically. Yeah, no, it, it's a beautiful book. I haven't read it all yet. I, um, I have to admit, hopefully by the time this airs, I will have. All right. Yeah, because I just can't put it down. It's so. It's not a. It's not a long book, and I tried to write it in a way that's really accessible. Uh, we just uh, published a, another book, as you mentioned, Paul, a New Covenant Jew. That's a more academic book, uh, but this one is is really meant for everybody. What every Catholic should know. It's it's the first book in a new series that Ignatius Press and Augustine Institute is releasing. The What Every Catholic Should Know series. So we've got books on literature, whatever Catholic should know, God, whatever Catholic should know, and this one is salvation. Fantastic. I noticed there was a lot of interesting things on that list, art and music and all sorts of things. But I just want to mention that anytime we talk about truth in our culture, people go one of two directions. They either say, well, your truth is your truth and mine is mine, and there's no understanding of the word. The other possibility is that if we believe something, that means there are other things that we don't believe. And so we get accused of intolerance. But I got such a kick out of the titles of your chapters <laughs> that, that our salvation is not this and not that and not that. And it made me laugh because, you know, sort of the, the way we unpack in this very, you know, fear of judgmentalism and intolerance culture, what way we unpack Ten Commandments tends to be to try to look on the positive side. And actually, these every chapter is really positive. It's not, I want to put in the word just, where it says not, ju not self-help. I want to say it's not just self-help. It is so much. Well, I, I would say it's not self-help. 
It's not, absolutely not self-help. <laughs> right, right. right? Salvation can't be that. Some of the other things you're right. <laughs> salvation isn't just fire insurance, right? right? It's not just being saved from hell. It involves a lot more than that. But let's be really clear. Salvation is absolutely in no way self-help because you can't be saved apart from God's help, apart from his grace. And this is the first chapter of the book. And to me, it's really where I wanted to start because I think it's the area where I think I see the most confusion among Catholics. You know, I'm a professor. I was a college professor for about 10 years. I taught graduate students for many more years. Now I've been, uh, I've come to the Augustine Institute where we just have a graduate school so I've, I've taught Catholics at all different stages in life. And uh, one of the things that I find over and over again is this tendency to forget that we can't do anything apart from Christ. John 15, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do only a few good things. That's not what he says. You can't <laughs> do nothing, right? And, and, and so our need for grace, our need for God's help, has to be something that we need to underscore right up front. And, you know, you can tell whether or not you really believe that salvation is not self-help. There's a real easy diagnostic, and that is how much time did you spend in prayer today? If you can go through your day without serious, significant time in prayer, I'm not talking about praying between innings of a baseball game (laughs) during commercial breaks on a television show. I'm not, I'm not talking about just squeezing a couple of prayers in, you know, grace before meals or something like that. No, I mean serious, substantive time with the Lord. But the fathers and doctors, the spiritual masters of the Catholic tradition, say you need at least a half hour every day, right? So time for mental prayer, the rosary. If you're not doing these things, then you know what you tell God every day? I don't need you. I got it covered. I, I don't really need your help. I'm fine. Thank you very much. Right? <laughs> And, and this is a real danger because we live in a chaotic world. We live in a world where people, you know, have huge things to do lists every day. I know I have a huge things to do list every day. And uh, the first thing we tend to cross off of that list when things get hectic is that prayer time. And if it means waking up earlier, if it means rescheduling something else, uh, we've got to do it because I, one of the biggest dangers is that we teach our children that they can be good on their own. I mean, yeah, I, I hear myself as a parent falling into Pelagianism. Pelagian was, uh, Pelagius was the heretic, right, who thought that you could be saved apart from grace. And I find myself falling into kind of a practical Pelagianism with my kids all the time, right, where I, I'm, I'm telling my kids, well, you know, you need to do this and you need to do that. And well, daddy, I, I, well, you need to try harder. You need to work harder, you know, and, I, and I've got to, I've got to stop myself and, and, and take my child aside and sit him down on the bed and say, okay, first off, did you ask Jesus for help today? When you woke up this morning, did you say any prayers? Okay. So you're having a tough day. You know, I might start there, right? are you trying to do this like a lone ranger? Are you trying to do this all on your own? Because if you're trying to get this all done on your own power, I got news for you, you're going to fail, right? And how often do we, as parents, just get, go right to the do's and the don'ts, the oughts, you know, this is what you ought to be doing. I don't do everything that I'm supposed to do. I don't, Paul says in Romans 7, he talks about how the very thing I want to do is to 
you know, a thing I can't do, and I do the very thing that I hate. You know, I'm talking about fallen human nature there. And this is true for it's also true for children. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that you just stepped us into a conversation, Michael, because sometimes we don't know how to take the great big idea and live into it with our children. And that's a big part of what we're about here at Homeschooling Saints is how do we live into it with our children? Why do you think the Catholic conversation is so limited on salvation? How do we get there? Yeah, well, I think one of the big problems is that a lot of uh, parents, and now, I mean, for a lot of us who homeschool our kids, we we recognize we are the primary teachers of our children, right? So a lot of us have taken that responsibility very seriously. And that that goes especially for religious education. But the reality is, if you go out there and you look at the way um, parishes and the way uh, organizations aim to do religious education, oftentimes they're talking to people who don't know anything at all. And so they're really starting at the ground floor. And, um, and there are lots of people who are there who are at the ground floor. I think a lot of us who have been formed, I, like, again, I, I consider, I said before, I consider, I, I had a very knowledgeable parents. My parents devout in their faith. I think my parents are saints. I really do mean that. Uh, but when somebody put the question to me, are you saved? It's like, whoa, what does that mean? And I think just in Catholic circles, we tend not to talk about this particular doctrine for a lot of reasons. Number one, I think, I mean, just reflect on this. When was the last time you heard a homily where the priest or the de- deacon said, today I'm going to talk about the meaning of salvation, right? It's not just, not just how to be saved, what, but what is salvation? I mean, that's really what I'm trying to do in the book is I'm not just talking about how to be saved, right? But what does it mean to be saved? Because a lot of times Catholics try to talk about salvation and they let people who are non-Catholics set the terms for that discussion. So are you afraid, to, Michael, about of being judgy, of sounding like we're judging if we say this is what you need to be saved, and if you don't? Well, I think that's another thing. That I, another, another real concern is that we don't want to talk about sin. Mm-hmm. We don't want to talk about what we're saved from. So it's a lot easier to talk about, quote-unquote, going to heaven <laughs> than it is talking about salvation, because salvation implies you need to be saved from something, right? So I, I do think that, that there's a component to, to that. I do think that there, there are a lot of people who, again, they set, though, the terms for what... Oftentimes we get just limited by apologetics, Right. So what does it mean to be saved? Oh, well, Protestants, non-Catholics think this, and this is what we think. And then we get kind of pigeonholed into a conversation about faith and works. And, and somebody might ask the question, well, then how many good works do you have to do to be saved? How many? What do you have to do? And I want to come back and say, well, what do you mean be saved? I mean, get out of hell? Is that your understanding of salvation? It's just getting out of hell? Because in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the goal of salvation history is for us to become conform to the image of God's Son, to become like Christ. Salvation isn't just being forgiven. It's not just getting off the hook. It's about becoming like Christ and having communion with the triune God in Christ, sharing in Christ's sonship with the Father, becoming children of God. This is what it means to be saved. So if you're thinking of salvation just in terms of getting out of hell, you're missing it, man. You're you're missing the, the whole point, right? And, and I think that this goes to uh, human, human nature, right? We'd, 
we, we kind of want to think about things in minimalistic terms. What's the bare minimum that I have to do? But I think at the same time, it's, again, our, our, the struggle with the culture around us, there's a lot of people in the church today who want to say, you know, Catholic Church's teaching is too hard. Teaching on, on marriage is too hard. Teaching on sexuality is too hard. It's just not realistic. We need to update churches, the church's teaching to make it more realistic. You know, in the Gospels, a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be saved? And when Jesus finishes his answer, the disciples are stunned. He says, you have to be perfect. And, and the disciples say to Jesus, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, well, I'm sorry. I guess I made it sound unrealistic. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> he said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So if we're not telling our children that what God asks of us is impossible, we're doing them a disservice. I, I think a lot of times as parents, we don't want to tell them that, right? We want to make it seem really easy. Look, all you have to do is X, Y, and Z today. And if you do these things, then you're doing the right thing. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is not about, you know, a checklist. And here's all the things you do. No. It's, the gospel tells us it's more about becoming than it is doing, being more than doing. It's more important is that we become Christ. You can do all these little things like Christ, but if you're not becoming like him, it's all for naught. And becoming like Christ, that sounds, that sounds pretty hard. You know what? Yeah, it is hard. It's impossible, right? <laughs> but with God's grace, all things are possible. So are we praying? Are we taking recourse to the sacraments? Because if we're not doing these things, right, if you're telling your kids all week long that they ought to do X, Y, and Z, but not taking them to confession on, on Saturday or on the weekend, you, you, I mean, it's almost a form of child abuse, right? Because you're, you cause, you're forcing them to try to live up to a standard that they cannot humanly live up to, right? Or us as adults or parents. And the catechism has this beautiful line in Catechism 1642, I think it is. It talks about how married couples are called to love one another with a tender love, but it goes on to say a supernatural love. Now, it's not enough for me to pay attention to my wife. My wife isn't just owed for me that I'm thoughtful. No, <laughs> what my wife is owed for me is supernatural love. I can't even barely love in a natural way, right? But what I'm called to do is love her in a supernatural way, but that's why marriage is a sacrament to enable me to love her in a supernatural way. That's why grace is so amazing. Yeah, Mike, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what I, I want to just clarify this because it's so part of our conversation out there, is what we're not saying is because it's impossible and we rely on, on God's grace, it's really impossible for everybody. So really everybody's saved. What we're, we're not saying that. We're saying something else. We're saying it's only possible with God's help. So what's our part? Yeah, so with God, all things are possible, right? And he wants, he wants us to become like him. And he makes that possible by his help. But the other side of this, and we, we need to be really careful about this too, is, uh, is, is turning the spiritual life into just a battle with our culture. Because it's not. A lot of times I hear people talk about spiritual warfare. And they talk about, you know... Uh, spiritual masculinity you'll have the you know men conference and they'll talk about spiritual masculinity and, and that's a really great concept but oftentimes it gets reduced to oh well us versus them 
It's us versus the culture. And, and <laughs> you know, the number one person that you need to fight in the spiritual life is yourself. The battle is first with you. And the devil would love nothing more than to get us talking about everybody else. That's why one of the chapters in the book is not just for other people, right? <laughs> because uh, that we tend to think about this. Right? Sin is a problem in the world. You know, it's really easy to hate sin. You know, <laughs> murder, uh, you know, theft, adultery, sins against, well, you know, sins that I don't commit, right? We can really, we can really get all riled up and have these public outrages about all these people who have sinned very easily because it's easy to find the speck in our brother's eye while missing the beam in our own. And so the first thing we need to talk about, even with our children, I would su submit, is our own spiritual struggles. If we're not telling our kids, like, I, I know I got, I got to pray today. I, I, I missed my prayer time today. You know, I lost my temper. I, I, I'm sorry. You know, I need God's help. We got to go down and make a visit to the church. I need to go make a visit. Why don't you come with me? I mean, that's, the, that's what we need to model for our children is how weak we are and how dependent we are on God's grace. Not that we're kind of Superman, right? Because one day or, not, one day or another, they're going to find out we're not, right? And at the end of the day, we want them to know that there is somebody who's a Superman, but he is the God man, right? And he is capable of helping us to live the Christian life, even in ways we, don't, we may not even think possible at times. Yeah, amen. Uh, yeah, um, the idea of our, I'm just looking at your chapter titles because they're so much fun. That this is not just fire insurance, right? It's not just keeping us out of hell. It's not without cost. Can you step us into a little bit of that, Michael? I think that's sure. really important. So, so if you read the book, it, it follows, the chapters sort of follow from one another. And in, in the previous chapters, I've been talking about grace. And what is the word grace? We, we Catholics, we use all these words we never define. We don't even know what we're talking about. Okay, uh, just a sidebar. I, when I was a college professor, I taught an undergraduate theology class every year. And every year before the class, I'd have students come up to me and say, Dr. Barber, you know, I, I've been Catholic my whole life. Uh, some of them say, I'm homeschooled. I don't think I need to take your, your class on the sacraments. And <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Would you like to test out of it? Yeah, I, I, th I, I think I can test out of it. All right, three questions. You ready? You mean right now? Yeah, right now. Here we go. And I always do the same thing. First question, why do we call it Mass? We say it every, I'm going to go to Mass. Go to Mass. Mass doesn't sound like something I want to celebrate. It sounds like something I want surgically removed from my <laughs> body, right? So why do we call it the Mass? They usually didn't have an answer for that. Of course, it comes from Latin term Misa, and the idea, Misa, mission, right? The Mass is what sends us on our mission. We can't accomplish our mission without the mass, right? Okay, Dr. Barr, what's the next question? Okay, Hosanna. What does it mean? You say it every time you go to mass, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest. You keep saying it, Hosanna in the highest. So what are you saying? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, Dr. Barber. I never had to ask a third question. I never got to question number three because by the time I was done asking the second question, they realized, yeah, a lot of things I've never thought about before. So grace, what does grace mean? Well, grace 
you know, I hear the word and I get hungry, you know, but it's more, <laughs> than, it's more than just a prayer before meals. In, in the New Testament, Paul talks especially quite a bit about grace. And the Greek word that he uses for grace, it wasn't a theological term in the ancient, it was a common word. If you read other great Greek literature, you'll see the word he uses for grace. It's, it's called, it, the, the Greek word is charis. It was a common word in Paul's day. It, it didn't have any particular spiritual meaning, in fact. Grace just meant gift. That's what I meant. You're, you're saved by God's gift. And as Paul will explain, the gift is that God gives us his son and he gives him, he gives us himself on the cross and he gives us himself by living in us. That's what grace is, Christ in us, right? So I've been talking a lot about grace in the, in the first couple of chapters. So why the cross? If God wants to give us salvation, if God wants so badly for us to be saved, if God wants to give us the free gift of his son, why the cross? Why doesn't God just say, I forgive you, and then we just move on? Now, see, a lot of times, we Catholics, we don't think about this. And a lot of people have thought about this, and a lot of people fall away from the church, and a lot of people fall away from Christianity because they start asking these questions and nobody's given them answers. So why, why does Jesus die on the cross? God. Is giving us salvation. So like God needs his pound of flesh? According to some people, that's the case. God's angry. He needs to see somebody die, somebody suffer. He vents all of his anger and wrath on Jesus. Now he's cleared the air and he's ready to forgive us. That's a horrific depiction of, of salvation. That is not salvation at all. So why the cross? Well, what I explain in the book is that the cross is the ultimate revelation of who God is. Right. Every time we say the name of God as Catholics, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, right, we begin every prayer with the sign of the cross. And we say who God is in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But then we make the sign of the cross. You think we could come up with some better sign language, right? I mean, like, why not a beard, you know, and <laughs> stretch out your hands like Jesus on the cross, and then flap him around a bit like a bird or something, you know? I mean, why, why this? Why the cross? Because 1 John 4 tells us God is love. That's who God is in his inner life. The Father loves the Son, holding nothing back. The Son loves the Father, holding nothing back, and the love that they share is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus becomes man, he does in his humanity what he's been doing from all eternity in his divinity. He's pouring himself out in love, holding nothing back. On the cross, we see this. It's a historical translation of what it means for God to be God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the cross. So what is it that we're called into? We're called into communion with God. And who is God? God is love. And so if we want to enter into this communion, we need to learn love. We need to learn to become selfless, not selfish. Right? Our culture is all about self-care and selfless <laughs> and self-that, you know. But, but the revelation of God is that God is pouring himself out in love, holding nothing back, not counting the cost, right? And so what are we called to? We're called to that. That's what salvation is ultimately. It's about entering into this life of love. And, uh, and we all know it. We all know that we are ultimately called into love. Um, it's written deep in the human heart. We have this deep desire to love and to be loved. And when we don't love, we end up miserable. This is the, the, the core of the story 
of the Christmas Carol, right? That famous book, that famous short story written by Charles Dickens that gets trotted out every Christmas season, right? It, turn on the television. Mickey Mouse is now, you know, uh, in the story. You know, they have all these different renditions of it. Why, why is it so popular? Because we know that if you live in a selfish way, you'll be miserable. And so Ebenezer Scrooge at the beginning of the book is described by Dickens as what? A hardened sinner. He's a hardened sinner. And he finds joy in giving himself away because this is what we're made for, to learn love. That liberation, yeah. I just, we don't have a lot of time left, and I'd like you to touch on one thing, which was one of my favorite points in your book. Uh, in the chapter, not just personal, um, my typical response to people saying they don't like organized religion is to say, well, you know, the Catholic Church is first on the ground at every disaster. It advocates for clothes, heels, and educates more people worldwide than any other organization. Yeah, it takes organization to do that. And, that, and I always thought that was very pithy and clever of me. Well, I read your chapter <laughs> on why it is that as a family and as a body, we come together as a church, that the sense of religion being practiced together as a community and as a body is so critical. And it's so beautiful and so layered and it's so packed with um, really accessible scriptural tie-ins as well. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity to comment on that too. Well, I just want to underscore that we oftentimes don't think first, what is salvation? We talk so much about oh, what do you have to do to be saved or something like that. But we need to ask the larger question, what does it mean to be saved? And, and one of the key points of the book, as you mentioned, is that salvation is more than just a personal encounter with Jesus. A lot of people want to reduce salvation to that. I mean, make no mistake about it. I point this out in the book. The Catechism of the Catholic Church affirms salvation is a personal encounter, but it can't just be about me and Jesus. Because what the New Testament shows us is that salvation is not simply a private reality. It's not just personal. It's communal. We need other people. You can't be brought into this world without other people. We need other people for biological life. But the same thing is true of the spiritual life. And I think a lot of times, uh, Catholics, you know, and oftentimes because we're influenced by non-Catholic thinkers or because we're so engaged in, in important dialogue, we, we can some kind, some, sometimes leave the church out of our understanding of salvation, leave communion out of our understanding of salvation, as if the church is just kind of stapled on to salvation. You know, it's like, well, here's what we believe, and it's so much like what non-Catholics believe, and then we also have the sacraments and all this other stuff that's kind of an addendum, right? No, no. The whole point of salvation is entering into communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And not just three persons, so it's not just me and Jesus, not just three persons, but all those who have been united to Christ. And here's the problem. If we forget this, if we don't emphasize this, then we end up thinking of salvation again as kind of like being a lone ranger. Then you don't need spiritual mentors. You don't need spiritual advisors. You don't need confession. You don't need the sacraments. This is where it ends up falling apart. Right? If you try to live your spiritual life as a lone ranger. And the Jesus in our head starts to look more and more like us over time. If we don't have that community to check oh, us. Oh, absolutely. Just, right. Uh, so easy. Absolutely. So we need other people to keep us accountable, right? And to make sure that you know, 
typically we, we, we overcorrect, right? We recognize some theological problem or we recognize some danger in our culture and then the pendulum swings too far to the other direction. And what we need is we, we need other people, we need the church, right? To, to make sure that, 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 that we're thinking like Christ and not mm, just Which makes me think the devil is awfully clever in the way that he sometimes will get people to leave the church and take their entire family with them because an individual in the church did them harm, upset them, or stepped on their turf at the church or whatever it is where we start, instead of seeing each other as a means of salvation, you know, that God can use them. And, and, this, and, and, and what you just said, you know, other people who have been harmed by the church, you know, I, think, I think especially of abuse victims, right? And, and this is where the devil is so, you know, diabolically sinister, right? I mean, he knows that if he can attack the trust that people put in the church and put in the leaders of the church, then he can rip us apart. And we have to, especially in an age when there's so much scandal and so much confusion, we have to stand guard against the devil who wants to infuse in, 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 in people a sort of deep suspicion, right? For others, for priests, for bishops. There's nothing more that he wants than to sow those kind of seeds of doubts among us, right? And so we need to recognize we've got to be part of the solution. We've got every one of us. Are we reaching out to other people who have been hurt? Are we are are are, are we asking questions about to people who have been hurt, who have been you know it could be abuse, it could be you know a territorial dispute at the parish, whatever. But we need to be blessed are the peacemakers and let people know who have been alienated in some way too that they're wanted, that they're missed, and we got to pray for them That's and exactly make sacrifices. Right. That's exactly them. right. They need us, and we need them. Because we all need one another. It's not about being a Lone Ranger, right? And God gives every one of us, each of us, specific gifts and charisms. And if we don't all work together, then we're, we're, we're missing out on mm, one another's amen, charisms amen. and gifts. Oh. Uh, Michael, this has been so enriching, and we could easily do a series on this, but, but everyone can get uh, lots more at your website, thesacredpage.com. Exactly the way it sounds, the yep. sacred page. The sacred page. It's a reference to the Bible, not <laughs> and also an internet they can site. I follow you on Twitter, right? It's Michael P. Barber, B A R B E R. Right. My, at Michael P. Barber. Yeah. At Michael P. Barber on Twitter. Um, that's sort of like, you know, the way I, I communicate when I'll be speaking somewhere. Another new releases. We've got a Bible study in the works, um, it's a, a video series of the Augusta Institute produced based on the book. So it'll take you through every chapter and uh, it's got discussion questions and a workbook. And, you know, my, my, my wife and I love these sort of resources. They're really ordered towards adults, but we find that our kids are, are pretty, mm, now, pretty well prepared for this kind of stuff. Michael, or is this something separate for now? Uh, I don't know if it'll be unformed. It might may very well be unformed. I mean, uh, one thing that my wife and I are trying to do and it, not official yet, but one thing that we're trying to do is uh, come up with something for the next year. Last year, we read the whole Bible with our kids. So we did the Bible in a year. The Augustine Institute puts out this great little publication. Happen to have a copy right next to me. A Bible in a year. And it's got readings for every day. And what we did is 10 minutes of the Old Testament, 
at breakfast, 10 minutes of the New Testament at the dinner table. And we did it. It was really my wife who was the, she gets all the credit for this, but she, we did it the whole year. And on December 31st, I sat down and read the last verses of the book of Revelation to the kids. And we read the entire Bible. And we really believe that the kids can do this. There, there are a few things, you know, you might want to edit out, edit as you're reading for the kids. Uh, but I'm, we're thinking about doing that in the coming year and uh, putting together a little program for people who want to follow us along. So I'll be talking about that on my Twitter page and on the sacred page and things like that. But we, we, we really believe that um, just my wife has been a director of religious education. I've been a professor of theology now. And one of the things is that Catholics don't know the Bible. And, you know, you don't read the catechism at Mass. We don't read St. Thomas Aquinas at Mass. We don't read St. Augustine or St. Therese of Lisieux or the writings of John Paul II or Pope Benedict XVI or anyone else at Mass. There's only one book you can read at Mass, and that's the Bible. Because it's the word of God in the very words of God, as the church teaches. And the irony is Catholics don't read the Bible, right? We, there it is. Every time we come to Mass, we don't read the Bible. And so a lot of parents try to do catechetics by teaching their kids this doctrine or that. And it's disconnected from Scripture. And you ask, you know, someone, ask a, a Catholic, well, where does Samson come in the story? Where is Abraham in the story? You know, and, and they just, they really don't know. And this is, this to me, very, is very problematic. And, I, and we think it's a real imp, uh, impediment for, for catechesis because all catechesis has to start with the word of God in sacred scripture. And uh, all these other great catechetical, res catechetical resources really meant to help us understand what it is that's been divinely revealed to us in the word of God. And so we're, we're trying to think through this right now, but anyway, that's our, our sort of plan. So things like that yeah, are always, so we want to keep track. track. We've something. got to follow you on at Michael Barber, sorry, at Michael P. Barber. And this will be on our show notes too, folks. So if you're driving and can't write it down, no worries. Just come to the, just come to the website. Oh, Michael Barber, thank you so much for being with us. And again, his new thank book you. is uh, Salvation. That important question, and the subtop the subtitle is "What Every Catholic Should Know." And again, Michael P. Barber at Augustine Institute. And we thank you so much for being with us and taking so much time with us today. Thank you very much, Lisa. It's been a delight to be with you. Oh, you're so welcome. Everybody, stay with us, and we've got a short feature coming right up. Hi, I'm Dan Lozonas from EinsteinBlueprint.com. Today, I want to talk about how parents can demonstrate entrepreneurship to their children. First of all, why do we have to do this? We are already working jobs. We are running households, maybe taking care of our aging parents and homeschooling our kids. Why on top of all that do we have to heap yet another burden on ourselves? Why do we have to reinvent ourselves as entrepreneurs? Obviously, our kids are not going to eat healthy if we only eat junk food in front of them. Our kids aren't going to value and read books if they don't ever see us buried in books. They're unlikely to put God first and go to church if we ourselves don't do so. Therefore, they might never become entrepreneurs if we don't model that behavior and ambition in at least some form. Right now, I'm going to give you three simple baby steps moms and dads can take that will help our kids learn to hustle and grind. Number one, you have to learn about entrepreneurship. If you want to cultivate any new skills or mindsets, it's very simple. There are books, there are podcasts, Pinterest boards, and Facebook groups we can all utilize for free. 
As we demonstrate a fervent interest in how the economic world works, our kids will naturally follow in step. Secondly, we have to start to sell things. Most of us weren't raised to sell things directly. We were raised to go to school, follow orders and get a job. But now we live in an abundant age where all of us have too much stuff. Luckily, there are many avenues through which we can sell our extra stuff to other people who probably have too much stuff also. As we start to sell all these things that are laying about and around our house, our old products, our old clothes, books, our old homeschool curricula and whatnot, we will not only regain some much needed space, we'll be showing our kids the basics, the fundamentals of selling, price setting, advertising, and negotiation. The third way I suggest parents can demonstrate entrepreneurship to their kids, and this is a little bit of a subtle move, obviously it can be very risky and potentially frustrating to launch one's own business and say try to get on Shark Tank or get investors. So instead of going all out on your own, instead of going solo, I want you to start to help out one of your friends or family members who already has their own business. Just chip in a little bit here and there. Your friend runs estate sales, just offer to help out one weekend. Your brother-in-law owns a restaurant, offer to help him with his advertising or his payroll. There's no age limit on becoming an intern. There are many, many ways to get a toe in the entrepreneurial waters. Trust me, as a working homeschooling parent myself, I know you are already super busy. But it's super critical that you do this to show your kids how to be proactive rather than passive when it comes to shaping their career. Look, I have some great news for you. As a homeschooling parent, you are already exercising many entrepreneurial skills. You've already been infinitely resourceful in differentiating instruction and cobbling together curricula. You've been exercising social intelligence as you've built up a social network. And you have been learning cold heart sales tactics as you got your kids to clean their rooms and do their math. Indeed, the overlap between homeschooling and entrepreneurship is massive. So in order to effectively demonstrate entrepreneurship to your sons and daughters, all you have to do is expand the scope of what you are already proving yourself capable of. Even more great news, when you're done homeschooling your kids, you will have well more than the magical 10,000 hours of practice in. You will be a bona fide expert. And you could become, like me, a homeschooling coach or consultant. Trust me, the demand for it is already big. If you want more information on how to demonstrate entrepreneurship and set your kids down an entrepreneurial path, then visit my 15-year-old homeschool son's website, kidsgetrich.com. That's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com, where you can get online courses for your grade school, middle school, and high school student. Learn from the experts and make your homeschooling easier. Be sure to leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time here on the Homeschooling Saints podcast.